0: You know, of all the ways that my phone is um, meaning, it, it, it's, it's the never-ending issues of things in our lives that introduces too many distractions, gets in the way, introduces too much meaninglessness. I got to say, there's one thing my phone does that is very meaningful, and I really appreciate it, and that's there's always a camera in my pocket. I take, uh, without exaggeration, five to 20 pictures a day, um, and so I'm buying up cloud space like the Louisiana Purchase. Um but at this point, what's great is that I, I, I bought that cloud space as soon as I became a dad because I'm like, I know it's picture time. And so I can scroll back and I'm talking, I can scroll through just days in 2017, 18, 19, and just see uh, my kids and all that's going on. Um, just thousands and thousands of pictures of all the little things they do. I primarily take pictures of them throughout the day. I was flipping through it. Um, Uh, Earlier this week and I came across a photo where I was about to go on a walk with Victoria when she was two and I said Do you want to walk it was December the rain had just let up we're gonna go out because the rain was letting out I said do you want to walk or do you want to take the stroller and she says stroller So I'm getting the stroller ready I say are you ready to go and then she comes out like this (laughs) She's got her stroller and uh, You know you snap those pictures because you're like that's cute. I'm gonna remember that but it doesn't occur to you when you're snapping it until you flip through them years later that, like, like these are the good old days. Like, those are the good old days. You, you feel busy. You feel like you're waiting for life to begin. You're at an in-between places in life. But it's the stuff of life. It's the zest of life. And moments in that time that seemed like everyday life, now I realize those are the moments of a lifetime. Those are the things you remember. Those are the things that are so powerful to us. These years aren't the years that we wait for life to begin. These are the good old days. And there's a power in realizing that. At the time, I, you know, you think it's just normal. You think it's just Victoria being silly. And uh, yet we find this incredible power in it. You know, there's things I think in life that we can easily take for granted. We hold them in our hand and then afterward we realize how powerful they really were how big of a deal that really was. Um, I don't have it in here now, but there's a very grainy photo. It's, it's actually not a good photo at all of my, of my second oldest. We're on a road between here and the beach where she was crying so hard, flipping out, had to stop to be fed, and she's kind of cheered up, and I snapped a quick photo, and I love that picture. I hated that moment. You know, you're on the way back. It's difficult. You left five hours after you said you were going to leave, and um, she's screaming in the back, but that's the, it's just those things you leave afterward and, and you just kind of think, I kind of wish I would have got it more. I wish I would have held it more. I think we can do that with, with even things like scripture. You read a passage over and over again and you're like, ah, it's, it seems nice, but then it hits you and it brings you to tears. And I wonder what's the, what is the space? What, what helps us really grip and come down to understanding how important a thing is that we're holding. And so I, when I think about the Christmas season, I think that it comes by every year and there's so much we do. There's so much that goes on and so many things that are there, family drama, things we're buying, places we have to go, that it could be very easy to slip away. And so this study is really, that we are doing over, the, over four weeks, is this time that we're looking at the songs of Advent. Almost all the songs of the New Testament have to do with the birth of Jesus. And there are these points when someone was so overcome, so present, so alive by what it meant to be present to the incarnation, to be part of this great plan, what it meant for Christ to be with us, Emmanuel, that their spirit was flooded with God, and they burst into song. And so really this study is about reading four songs, when heaven and nature sing, people and angels looking at what came out, so that 2,000 years later, we could join them in that praise and let Advent, let the incarnation, Emmanuel with us, be something that comes alive to our spirits. So we're going to read, um, last week was the Magnificate, is the traditional name for Mary's song. This one's called the Benedictus. This is Zechariah's song. Um, And so we're going to be studying the Benedictus today, and we're going to start with a little bit of Zechariah's story. So we're going to start in uh, Luke 1, we're starting verse 5. In the time of King Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. when and when the time for the burning of incense came, all assembled uh, worshipers were praying outside. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God. And. Uh, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day it happens, because you did not believe my words, uh, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed uh, so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained silent. And when his time of service was over, he went home. And after this, his wife became pregnant. Uh, where she remained in seclusion for five months. The Lord has done this to me, she said. Uh, In these days, he has shown favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. You know, John the Baptist, I have to say, is the most undersold figure in the New Testament, and I would say probably the scriptures altogether. He is one of the, he is so significant, and yet he's this little blip in our gospel stories compared to what he could have, would have, should have been in any other book. There are very few figures foretold in the New Testament and the Old Testament. There are two figures whose birth was foretold in the narrative. It's Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. That's a really short list. He is prophetic and filled with the Spirit of God for the first time after 400 years of, prof- of prophetic silence. And he is this grand connection, called from his infancy which is incredibly significant in scripture. Few people are called like that. He is the crown of the prophets. All the prophets leading up, starting with Elijah and onward, he is the crown of their whole order and who they ever were. Jeremiah and Isaiah could have only dreamed of being the prophet that leads the way for the Messiah. He is incredibly significant. And he's so hidden because of the one who is to follow. He is the opening act for the Messiah. And that's the only reason why there isn't a book of John the Baptist. He's he's interesting. He's got one foot in the school of Old Testament prophets and one foot in Christ. He's a bridge between the two. He's a bridge builder between the two. And like all bridge builders, he has the wisdom to know that the last step you do when you finish the bridge is get out of the way. One of the most significant things I think summarizes this great prophet's life is one statement he makes. He sees Jesus and he says, he must become greater and I must become less. For anyone who's called by God, it's one of the most profound things to remember that in everything that we do, it would be great if we were forgettable and God was unforgettable. And that was his, uh, his goal and he certainly got what he wanted because for incre- as incredibly significant as he is, uh, he, he, the act that follows, he gives him all the light and all the glory. And his calling is a unique one. I think it's worth pausing before we move on to the song to think about what's said about him. He will go on before the Lord, it says in verse 17, and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the parents to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness and to make the people prepared for God. His mission, his call is this Reconciliation that he will turn parents to the elders for caring for children and children looking to the elders for wisdom and bringing these two things together. You see, there's a social breakdown that Israel is suffering at the time that would have made them not ready for the wisdom of Christ, that would have made it difficult. There had to be one to come and bring these social healing, this connection between elders and between youth to reunify the nation that they could be prepared for when Christ came to preach the kingdom. There's a breakdown of uh, young people desiring the wisdom of their elders. And what's amazing is this. He said he's in the spirit of Elijah. One of the things that made Elijah significant was his miracles. In fact, his protege, Elisha, said, I'll follow in your way, Elijah. Give me a double portion. And so he gets it, and he performs twice as many miracles to the exact number uh, in the biblical narrative. Miracles is what Elijah's known for. Yet John the Baptist did not... Do a single miracle in Scripture. His miracle was turning hearts in a repenting nation, people coming together to to respond. And it is honestly one of the greatest miracles that could ever happen. To give someone back their sight with their eyes is one thing. Give them back the sight of their spirit is by far more profound. And he lives this profound calling. No miracles, but a social revolution. I think before we move on, it's worth knowing that the blending of generations is critical to prepare the church for God. It is critical for us to blend generations, that everything from boomer bashing, millennial mockery, the discounting of Gen Z, they just, they're a total mess. Who can do anything with them? It's so critical that we come together and, and, and be someone that can share life and wisdom across life experiences and not go up as cohorts of Christ and be separated from one another. There is, and I feel like we should call it for what it is, I feel that there is a demonic attack on the nation to separate generations, that things in the news criticize this generation and that one for the way they spend their money, the way they did this, the way they prepared for that, to, to separate people because if we do not connect wisdom of life experience of those who are older with the energy and the vigor and the need to be raised when you're young, and the need to, to constantly be changed. I can say that uh, all this time in youth ministry, you change so much more as a mentor than you do as a mentee. It changes you. There is an incredible and profound growth that happens when young and old come together, and that was John the Baptist's calling, and it should be the heart of our church. My prayer is that uh, Living Way would be one, to be a church that's ready as we, as we share and come across boundaries. We come across those lines and can share uh, life experience with each other, whether we are young or old, come from different walks of life because it's the difference. It's the need to have to translate, to slow down or to speed up, to come at someone else's pace that opens us up to the movement of the Lord and the Holy Spirit between us. it's a profound thing. And if it could prepare people for Christ in that day, it prepares us today. And so my hope is that we would just, we would be ones willing to be blended because when we come together, great things can happen with God. Now, he's struck with silence, and we're going to read a little bit what happens with that silence. So we're going to now jump ahead quite a bit. We're going to jump all the way to verse 57. So this is, uh, she, uh, his wife Elizabeth is about to have the child. It says, when uh, it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby. Oh, it said it right in the first line. I didn't have to tell you that. <laughs> uh She gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. This would have been an unbelievable miracle. She's past childbearing years, and um, this miraculous child happens. They might have expected some great worship to come out of this. On the eighth day, they came, which is typically when they'd name the child. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. It was very uncommon to pick a name that wasn't a family name. It was almost offensive. It felt to them as if you were rejecting the family behind you and judging them. And so this is a, a no-no. Uh, then they made signs to his father to find out uh, what, uh, what he would like to name the child. It's an interesting note. They had to make signs to him because he couldn't speak. At least that's what it seems like. But the word actually that says that his that his tongue was tied, he couldn't speak, is the same one uh, for being both deaf and mute. And so he probably had both taken away because that's probably why they're having to make signs to him. Uh, and they asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, "His name is John." Immediately, uh, his mouth was open and his tongue, excuse me, his mouth was open and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God, and all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country, the people of Judea were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. I think it's interesting that Mary asks a question, too, and she doesn't lose her ability to speak and hear. But if you read it in, in English, it's a little more difficult. than Greek, their questions are different. We have to remember our scriptures are written in Greek, and so Mary's question is a little bit different. It's uh, it involves wonder. It involves wonder of like how. So how it's not how can this, but it's more of a question of how is this going to work? Considering I've never slept with a man, how am I going to be a mother? And then she's given an explanation. Uh, Zechariah in fact, the message by translation says, you expect me to believe this is how it translates the idea. But he's essentially saying, how could this possibly be? What you've told me, angel, is impossible uh, because of the stage of life that we're in. And he loses his uh, ability to speak. What's interesting is that if you read the narrative, Luke was very smart the way he wrote this. We have to remember he was telling a story and he wanted us to pick up on things. The last thing Mary says before she bursts into song is she says to Gabriel, may it be to your servant as you say. And then he leaves her. And uh, the last thing Zechariah communicates before his tongue is loosed is his name is John. What precedes both of their filling of praise and presence is this spirit of obedience. It was the moment that Zechariah finally agreed and accepted uh, to a public level. I can't imagine that he was unconvinced. But something happened when he did this act of obedience. You know, sometimes I think we feel spiritually clogged. We feel like there's just, I'm I'm hearing the sermons and I hear the worship songs and I read the Bible, but I just feel dead right here. I just feel like I'm not feeling it. I'm not connecting with it. And I, I think it's worth to reflect on this and to realize that What loosens the tongue is obedience, and what ignites the spirit is saying yes. And sometimes it's worth it to take a personal inventory. Is there an area of my life that I'm refusing to say yes to, that I'm refusing to to accept in obedience? Being John the Baptist's father, the greatest uh, crown prophet, the one at the end of their order, would take a lot of really great parenting to prepare him for that role. And it wouldn't do well to have it be carried out by a father of weak faith. God was faithful to Zechariah, even in this pressure, even in this pressure of you didn't respond well and I need something changed within you, Zechariah, before you're ready to receive this blessing. It is a faithfulness to take care of him, to prepare him, to not drop him into the deep end, unable to swim. Because what's interesting is Zechariah essentially is very doubtfully asking for a sign, isn't he? How could this possibly be that I'm going to have this child? And I would say being struck deaf and mute is kind of a sign, (laughs) especially when it's just struck deaf and mute, and it's going to lift when the miracle is fulfilled. It's a sign. It was a sign to him then, and it's certainly a sign to him now that when he finally admits it and says his name is John, it means that all of it's true, because his tongue has loosed everything. The miracle happens, and he realizes everything Gabriel said was true. This boy really is going to bring people back to each other. It's going to reunite grandfathers and grandchildren. He's going to re-knit together our order of life and our social structures, so that when the Messiah comes, the nation will be ready for him. On the other side of this time of pressure, we find that Zechariah is abundantly more ready for the life and spirit that's about to fill him. And he bursts into song. Let's read the first half of of Zechariah's song. So this is called the Benedictus, because the first word in the Latin Vulgate was Benedictus. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He has um, said through his holy prophets long ago, Salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us to the mercy of our ancestors, to, uh, oh, excuse me, to show, uh, excuse me, I'm going to start over. I don't know why I'm not, I'm not wearing my glasses today, and I thought I could get away with it, and I'm not. Um, salvation from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's this line that it opens up with about the, the Christ has been risen as a horn of our salvation. And I I've, I've read this before. I thought it was like a burp, 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 like that kind of horn. It's only that way in English. In Greek, there's two words. They've got horn, the instrument, and horn, the ram's horn, and that's what's referring to here. There is this concept in Hebrew poetry. It's hard to find in the Bible. You find it other places where the horn of a goat or a ram is seen as its strength and its power. You've got this animal that is otherwise covered in very soft, fleshy, fur, warm, very vulnerable, but that one point on that toothless animal is the most powerful and assaulting thing that it has. It breaks, it attacks. When two rams attack, they don't hit hooves, they don't hit sides. It's going to be their horns crashing together. It meant something to Israel, that imagery, because Israel is vulnerable and soft, and it is not ready to assault in any direction but one, and that's the horn. And as they've been at this time of Life and living, worshiping God in fear, afraid of what the Romans would do, what the Persians were going to do, what the Babylonians are going to do to them. They have longed for the day that God would raise up a horn out of the, out of the nation, something to protect it, something to defend it. It's an amazing image for us to remember that Christ is our mighty deliverer. Sometimes we get this franticness, don't we? Like we have to be aggressive. We have to see it. If we see trouble, we must be prepared to always fight, to always be the one aggressing. But there is this very uh, counterintuitive response Christ asks us to do later in life when he is teaching and preaching the kingdom. He tells us the meek will inherit the earth. And if we're struck on one side of our face to turn the other, to be willing to be vulnerable because Christ is plenty aggressive and strong and firm to defend us. It doesn't say the strong will take the earth. It says the meek will inherit the earth. Meekness in the Bible means this deep trust in God, his goodness, the acceptance of his timing, that the hard things coming up against us, if they are difficult now, we must trust in his timing that he will protect and defend. And the meek are those who rely on God to deliver them from combat and from injustice. Meekness is the opposite, scripturally, of self-interest and self-assertiveness. We wait for a mighty outcome, but we are not the horn. And I think that's one of the most critical things that Zechariah realizes, is that he is not strong enough to deliver the nation. He knows the little boy is not strong enough to deliver the nation, but they can do their part. They can be meek. They can be humble, because God is going to rise up a horn to defend the nation. I think we walk away from this feeling, this deep prayer sense of may Christ be that mighty king and may I live a life of meekness and obedience and responsiveness to him. It's not being... um disinterested in life or giving up or or, or refusing to ever take a stand, but being responsive that if the horn leads the way, if Christ leads the way and breaks the enemy in front of us, we can step into that. We can step forward as he breaks as if crashing through ice and cutting a new way for us through an iceberg. We can trust God to do the hard thing, the tough thing, and we can step forward in faith and taking a stance with him. But it is Christ who goes in front of us. It is not your job to fight. It's not your job to fix everything that you see. It's not your job to fix all the injustice we watch on the news. We still wait and rely on God. We will all do our part. John the Baptist did not deliver the nation, but he did his little part. We can do our little part as well and not take onto our shoulders the pressure of needing to be that mighty horn. And now Zechariah's song begins to get personal as he turns his attention towards his son. And you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord and prepare a way for him to give uh, his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun uh, will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And now we come to the great image, the crescendo of his song, the song, the Benedictus, that God's faithfulness is like the rising sun. The rising sun is a thing that it happens every single day and had a deep meaning to these people. That no matter how dark and sinful and destructive the night was, God was still faithful to rise the sun onto you, to lift it up and to give warmth to you. His mercy keeps coming and coming so consistently is God's graciousness that it is something you can set your watch by. It's consistent and as reliable as the sun will rise tomorrow, God is merciful to his people and forgives them. And though we live in darkness, that cycle, it's never interrupted. The Lord is good and he brings his light. I think we really need to have a faith like that, that God is consistently Good and consistently merciful, that it is a thing that we can rely on. Zechariah is really awake to the moment. He's awake to the what it means to have Christ with us, to, be, to have Emmanuel come among us, to have God now moving and living with us. He's awake to the moment when he's filled with that spiritual light that shows them just how gracious God is. Right now, know this. God is the horn of your salvation. The point of it, the breaking part, the strength that you needed. He is mighty. He is brave. He does the work. And so our part in this is to be meek and to say yes. That is Zechariah's lesson, is that he needed to be meek to let God do miracles and to let him just respond. There he is standing in the presence of Gabriel. That, that's it. That's, in terms of angels, that, that is A-class celebrity. He's mentioned in the Old Testament. And Gabriel tells him this mighty thing, God will do this on your behalf. And Zechariah is wondering, how am I supposed to do this? I'm, I'm too old. And his lesson is, be meek and say yes. <laughs> it's remarkable to think that Mary had this belief. She was going to be the mother of the Messiah, and she's a 14-year-old girl. May it be to your servant as you say, and I wonder if the difference between the two of them was that Mary realized God's going to have to do it because I can't. And Zechariah thought, how is God expecting me to get this done? The joy of Emmanuel, God with us, comes to us when we realize that Jesus coming to us in the flesh means that he is our protector, our guide with us. Imagine yourself for a moment lost in the woods, completely lost. You don't know where you are. Every moment you're vulnerable to predators. You don't have anything to protect yourself. And finally, the park ranger arrives, knowing where to go, Confident in where he's taking you, and he's armed. Don't you feel better? I do. We find that we don't feel so lost when the guide is with us. We feel like we can, we can have some peace to live that one thing, that hope that Zechariah had. I really hope that this horn, this mighty Savior for Israel, gives us the kind of freedom to worship God in peace and without fear. And suddenly being lost in the woods is simply a trip out because we have confidence that the guide, the ranger has come and he's leading us out. My encouragement, and what I think Zechariah's encouragement is this, rejoice in his arrival, rejoice in the arrival of God in your life. That, he, that Christ is an image that shows us so clearly that God wishes to dwell with us, to dwell with you, to lead you personally, to be aggressive on your behalf, to lead you out and to have some peace now that he's arrived and now that, that destruction is at bay, now that anything that happens to us is a time of testing and refining and not here to destroy us, that we can have peace to simply trust God and to worship him with freedom from anxiety, freedom of fear, freedom of feeling like, whatever is in my future, I must do it. I must actuate it. I must aggressively make it happen. That's the job of our savior. Be meek and say yes. I wanna pray for us. I wanna pray for everyone in here who feels lost. And though you know Christ, you realize it's been a long time since you've been right on the back of that ranger that you've been following him, that your eyes have been on where Christ is at. And you want to go back to being found. You want to live in that daily dwelling with the Lord, where there's guidance, where there's peace, where there's protection. As you recognize that today, I'm going to pray over you, that the Holy Spirit be with you and encourage you, that the changes ahead that you feel you need to make, he can make you plenty courageous to do them as he breaks the way in front of you to come back and to return back to the one who leads you forward, your pathfinder. Lord, I pray for the lost in this room right now, those who feel lost. God, I pray that you would remind them that the way to go forward isn't to know the way out, but to simply know the one who knows the way out. Lord, I pray that there would be a calling back to Jesus, a calling back to the Lord to follow in his footsteps, to go after life the way he advised us to, to apprentice under him again, to return back to thinking like Jesus, doing things like the Lord and following. God, I pray that there would be a grand calling back to discipling under you, that we wouldn't feel lost, it's not our job to know the way out of the forest, but to simply know where is the pathfinder and to remain with him, to follow in his footsteps, steps where he steps, grab where he grabs, climb where he climbs and rest where he rests. Lord, I pray for a wooing back and calling back to you. Lord, I also want to pray for those that feel numb to the spirit of worship this Christmas season. They just feel numb. They've, it's overworked, over busy, over Lord, I pray that you would give them the kind of wisdom that comes from the word of slowing down. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom as to how to slow down. God, I pray that you would make it alive to us that what happened 2,000 years ago is still meaningful to us today. Not because Jesus is literally showing up right now, literally being born on earth, but because we forget that he has been. We forget the reality of what Emmanuel means. We forget how powerful it is that you chose to dwell with us. We don't die and go to heaven. You came alive and came to us, Lord. I thank you so much that you've chosen to live in my life and our life to be with us. Lord, I pray that the spirit of the incarnation and the worship that we have in that in this season be made fully alive in every one of us. That if it is varnished, if it is dusted, may it be made new, Lord, as we enjoy your presence. We thank you, God. In your name I pray. Amen.